Greetings, everyone. This is Cassandra Floyd, also known as Yapo Angina, also known as the Rogue Black Girl. And as I promised, I was going to be a lot more disciplined about reading regularly during the week and trying not to be so spontaneous in the readings. Um, so I'm reading today, but uh, for future reference, the readings are going to be Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. For those who are joining for the first time, I am reading The Great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth by Monica Zhu and Barbara Moore, written in 1987. Um, I have been reading this book now live online since January. This is, for those who don't know, the second time I'm reading this book live, the entire giant book, the new Bible, if you have me tell it. Thanks for joining. So um, the chapters, like I said a couple of days ago, are getting increasingly longer. So we're not going to be reading as many chapters per reading. I'm going to try to keep the readings down to an hour at best and, you know, at worst, an hour and a half. Um, <clears throat> so for those that don't know, the book is called The Great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth by Monica Zhu and Barbara Moore. Um, I was turned on to this book about five maybe six years ago, and I've read the book four times, like a novel, front to back. And given the um, given the state of things over the last few years, I decided two years ago to write, uh, to read the book live online, but I did it through Facebook. I wasn't really, you know, using my YouTube as much. And <clears throat> the quality of recording, you know, the ease of getting to and navigating to get to those readings was really complicated. So I made up my mind. I was going to do it more disciplined, name the chapters, number the chapters because they're not numbered in the book. Now, for those that are tuning in the first time, want to follow along. If you check out the descriptions, there is a link to the free PDF of this book that you can download online and read along. The book is um, the book is pretty easy to get. I think I got my copy used for like five bucks. So I would encourage you to buy the book. You're going to need to because you can see um, mine is really well noted up, right? And um, you'll be wanting to take notes the same way. After I have completed um, reading the book live online, I anticipate being done by the first week in July. I'm going to start f facilitating a book club for the for the book because I've been asked to about 20 times. Since I started reading the book online, and uh, so what I'm going to do is just get through the reading live so people can refer to it, and then I'll start the workshops and the the, uh, the um I'll start the book club. I'm going to plug my phone up really quick. Um, in July, <clears throat> with the book club, what I will be doing is um. In the description below, you will find a link to the, um, you will find a link to the Facebook um, book club, which is where I'll be facilitating from. This is so awkward. Ugh. Sorry about that. Uh, <clears throat> I'll be still facilitating from Facebook. So again, just click on the description below. You'll see all the information. You'll see the information for the book club for the readings that happen weekly. Um, I'm 
doing it today because I didn't do it yesterday. But from now on, it'll be Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. For those that are just tuning in, I am talking about the wonderful, the magnanimous, the evidence of the ability to channel wonderful work by Monica shows so uh, Monica Zhu and Barbara Moore, the great cosmic mother, rediscovering the religion of the earth. So without further ado, I will begin the reading for today. I will be doing today chapters 43, 44, and 45. Um, so today we'll start with chapter 43, which is called The Split in the Garden. The biblical myth of Eve and Adam and their expulsion from the Garden of Eden is another tale of the separation of the female from the male at Yahweh's command. According to Hebrew and Christian teachings, Eve, the first woman, is the cause of the fall of humanity from paradise into earthly suffering. She is the source of original sin. In Genesis, all, uh, in Genesis are all the recognizable elements of the much more ancient mother goddess myth, uh, symbol and ritual. Here is the garden of the goddess and her wise cosmic serpent, the tree of knowledge with its dark soma fruit, the fig of the Cretan goddess, which became for Westerners the magic apple of the European white goddess. Here also is a strong trace of Near Eastern creation mythology, which tells how the great mother shaped the first human beings from earth dust and her own saliva and then breathed her breath of life into them. Eve means life. And Eve is called the mother of all living. Adam means son of the red mother earth. These legends... These creation myths go back thousands of years before the Hebrew patriarchs wrote the Bible. But in Genesis, it is a father God who creates all life. And the first woman is born from a man's body. A very interesting biological reversal. In this opening book of the Bible, the historic uh, political ideology of the patriarchs is clearly stated. The new male God forbids Adam and Eve to participate in the sacred mystery rites of the great goddess. They may not eat of her fruit and gain transcendent knowledge. Of course, Eve, who was the priestess of the goddess, disobeyed Yahweh's command. She tries with the magic aid of her serpent to persuade Adam to partake with her of the narcotic fruit and sexual rites, leading to ecstatic illumination and rebirth in the goddess's garden of immortality. And this is the original sin and the established doctrines of the Hebrew and Christian religions. Lilith in Hebrew legend was the rebellious woman created before Eve. She was portrayed as part snake and wearing wings, the winding serpent who is Lilith. And was blamed by Yahweh for having tempted Eve to reveal and initiate Adam into the mysteries of the garden. Lilith represented the ancient Canaanite worship of Astarte, Asherah, and also Ishtar of Babylon. Her relation to the very old snake and bird goddess is obvious. And her rebellious, naughty mysteries were those of yoga, of kundalini, and spinal illumination. Mysteries and techniques indigenous to the Near East, as well as to Europe 
and India until the Hebrew patriarchs set out to censor them. Far into medieval European Christian imagery, the serpent in paradise is pictured with a woman's head and breasts. Significantly, Eve's punishment for her sin consists of patriarchal marriage. (laughs) Her desire must be only for her husband. She must leave her garden and follow him over the barren male-ordered earth condemned to unwanted pregnancies and painful childbirth. In other words, patriarchal patriarchal marriage in which she is isolated from the women's collective and deprived, uh, deprived of her ancient knowledge of herbal contraception and narcotics used for painless labor. She is no longer priestess and midwife to the goddess. She will now bear children bitterly and they will belong to the man. She must also passively make love to Adam on her back. He enacting the male sky father over the meek female earth. She must play the role of corrupt matter chained to the husband forever, striving to be free, uh, striving to free his immortal spirit from her. Eve is still every woman. Um, With other world creation myths reduced to only fairy tales, the Old Testament Genesis is still treated with seriousness and respect in Western political and cultural world. Even people who are not practicing Jews or Christians are affected by it. For the patriarchal notions enshrined in Genesis are at the base of all our cultural, political, and economic institutions. In contradiction to the United States Constitution, we might add, American law and custom have always been heavily influenced by the Bible because the men who make law and custom have been raised to believe that the Bible is the truth. No need to point out to women in the 1980s that anti-abortion legislation, job discrimination, pay inequity, and marriage laws against women are still roundly justified in the U.S. Congress as God's will. Genesis is quoted to prove that God designed women to be dependent helpmates to men. Any legislation or custom that might free women from such economic or biological or social uh, social dependence, anything that might further women's autonomy of choice is bulldozed by Bible quoters as a great, as a threat to the family, i.e. the biblical patriarchal family, which has indeed historically depended on female slave labor. Sex inequity, otherwise known as God's plan for man, has Uh, has for two millennia been a major bastion of support for a class economic system designed to profit the few by underpaying the many. God is used to justify this system because all else fails to justify it. And And the God of Genesis who wrote the rules for sex inequity in our part of the world now sits in the executive boardrooms of most global corporations, making sure these archaic but lucrative discriminations are interwoven tightly into our high-tech futures. Indeed, in July 1969, an American manned spaceship left a microfilm of the Bible buried on the dust of the moon at the taxpayer's expense. One giant step backwards for womankind and the moon. 
the Genesis story of Cain and Abel, the sons of Eve and Adam, continues the process of the Hebrew patriarch's political struggle against the goddess. As already noted, the good brother Abel was a shepherd, like his nomadic sky father-worshipping prototypes. The bad brother Cain was an agriculturalist, representing the settled farmers of the neighboring matriarchal people of Canaan. Throughout the Near East and, the Mesop- and Mesopotamia, generally, the agricultural abundance of the Neolithic was the Garden of Eden, a fertile and long-sustained paradise of earthly and spiritual existence. The Bronze Age raiding, plundering, and spreading of warfare by sky god warriors and nomadic pastoralists was breaking up this garden into fortress cities and destroying Eden. Perhaps the nomadic sheep herders and cattle herders deeply coveted the settled agricultural life as much as they officially despised it. At any rate, ritualized goddess-oriented Neolithic agriculture was bad until the new male order could take it over and make it work for gain, for their gain. Generally, when men took over control of agricultural work, developing the plow and other large-scale earthworking tools, they also began to develop ideas of the male as the cosmic generative principle, watching grain seed germinating as, as if of itself in the earth. They could conceive of the male seed as containing already in itself the whole germ energy of life. Oh, 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 mm. long into the Middle Ages, people believed that a drop of male semen contained a complete miniature fetus. Some notable scholars claimed to be able to see the teeny being and even drew pictures of it. Until the Bronze Age, the growth of the grain seed was believed to be caused by Uh, emanations of the moon, combined with nourishment from rain and the earth. The law of matriarchy had governed agriculture. All all produce uh, gathered not according to the right of the seed, but to the right of the soil. The seed takes on the nature of the soil, not the soil take on the nature of the seed. But male-dominated agriculture evolved the concept of the earth as in... as inert matter, simply a nourisher, excuse me, a nourisher of the male generated life seed. By analogy, the only, um, the human, the human or animal mother was simply a passive receptacle for the father's seed, which contained the child they believed. Quote, when seed is thrown into the earth or into the womb, there is no difference, end quote. Wrote uh, uh, Gellinus, plowing was experienced by men as forced sex. Y'all are not hearing, yo. Oh my God, y'all ain't hearing. Plowing during this shift in cultural uh, belief was experienced by men as forced sex a rape of the earth, the rape of dumb inner matter by enlightened spirit. And woman was as the humble furrow where proud man sows his seed. The female ovum or egg 
wasn't discovered until 1827. So for 2,000 to 4,000 years of patriarchy, all religious, philosophical, biological, and medical theories were based on the assumption of the male as the sole generative, physical, and cosmic force. From being seen for so long as little more than the openers of womb, so fertilization could, could occur between women and the spirits, men in the Bronze Age came to see themselves as the sole parents of life. The male god swelled and erupted with the heady, with this heady recognition. And, the, and like the Sumerians drowned in, uh, in Inki's semen, we still live in the ontological fallout. Elaborated by generations of male brains, the Bronze Age vision of women as earth to be conquered and, quote, made fertile remains intact. Freud saw libido as wholly male and from that theorized that all creativity is also male. Marriage under patriarchy was then seen as a symbolic union of sacred spirit, i.e. man, and profane matter, i.e. women. Patriarchal marriage is conceptually a kind of legal mechanical attempt to reunify the original male-female principles split apart by the father God. But the reunion is all on his terms, dualistic role-playing rather than organic gynandrous fusion in the psyche of each partner. Quote, husband and wife are one and the one is him, end quote. Women have been made to act out un, uh, unintegrated negative aspects of yin and yang. Quote, woman is earthbound. Through her, own, through her, you grow roots in the dark, the hidden, in the earth and magic. The flesh is sinful. Sinful is she. Deepest inside man is spirit and spirit wants him, want, and spirit wants to climb, climb into freer spheres because of this the spirit fights the body and the flesh and is ashamed when he lets himself be led astray, end quote. The classical Greeks practiced ideal homosexuality, platonic love, as it was called. The goddess Sybil and Ishtar had allowed ecstatic sodomy in their temples and made no prohibition of physical love between males. But as Robert Graves points out, ideal homosexuality was an attempt by the male intellect to free itself spiritually from the goddess, to make itself cosmically self-sufficient. Um, it was a philosophical extension of patriarchal cultural strategy. If the physical female world can be reduced to meaningless material, then the idealizing mind, male, is justified in manipulating, exploiting, and even destroying it. And thereafter, the male mind is defined by its ability to organize the natural world into rational categories whoo, for objective study and use. Y'all ain't here. Socrates, the proponent of ideal homosexuality, was contemptuous of mythic and poetic thought processes. He turned his philosophical back on ancient mysteries and trained himself to think 
scientifically. In fact, Socrates thought verbally, turning multidimensional, multisensual life process into a linear dialogue between aristocratic male minds. Socrates, the world's first famous obsessive talker, <laughs> complained publicly that his wife, Xantippe, talked too much. She is famous justly for dumping a pot of piss over his head. When Socrates once did ponder the nonverbal unknown, however, he appealed to Diatima, the inspired uh, Pythia, to reveal what lay beyond him. And she disclosed to him the essence of the goddess. In Socrates' time, the realities of the ancient Cretan and Mycenaean cultures were remembered only as legends of the past golden age. What remained of mother goddess symbols and rituals were practiced in secret cults by women and country peasants. The Aryan invaders from Central Asia had, in late Minoan times, already begun a systematic falsification of the existing myths. Apollo's priests proclaimed that rational poetic language and thought were to replace the inspired poetic language of the goddess. From then on, poetry, language itself, ceased to be a mantic utterance and became a social ornament and political device called rhetoric. Socrates thought that the, under, that the understanding of the myth and symbols were irrelevant to self-knowledge. He also, of course, a he was also, of course, a townsman. He talked endlessly about life, but was far removed from the sources and consequences of his own living, eating, breathing, shitting, and dying. Ancient myths and rituals were based on tree lore, on seasonal observations of life in the fields, um, on seasonal observation of life in the fields, on the body's direct and rhythmic relation to the nature's rhythm, uh, rhythms from then, from, but from time, from the time of Socrates, culture in the Western world has meant male urban elite culture based on an intellectual contempt for the revelations and customs of country life. Damn. Oh my God. What is going on here? I thought this was. Let's see here. Hold on just a second. My, uh, oh, I see what's up. All right. Let's see. I think that's it. All right. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. Okay little technical glitch. All right. So J.J. Bakafin, the first modern researcher into matriarchal societies, was also quite eloquent in his justifications of patriarchal culture. To him, the maternal society was also un the undifferentiated unity of the mass. He found exclusivity and privilege abhorrent to Mother Earth her children living communally and practicing orgiastic sexuality. Paternity, on the other hand, introduced, quote, the principle of dif differentiation and restriction 
leading to, quote, higher spirituality. The triumph of paternity. Oh, my God in heaven, y'all. The triumph of paternity. God damn it. Anyway, the triumph of paternity brings with it the liberate. Oh, my God. All right. The triumph of paternity brings with it the liberation of the spirit from the manifestations of nature, a sublimation of human uh, human existence over the laws of material life, while childbearing motherhood is bound up with the earth that bears all things. The father, begetter, stands in no visible relationship to the child. He discloses an immateriality over over against which the sheltering and nourishing mother appears as matter and as place and nurse of generation. The son's self-sacrifice to his begetter, the father, requires a far higher degree of moral development because the relation is mainly an abstract idea than mother love, that mysterious power that equally permeates all earthly creatures, end quote. Bakafin speaks of the formless and orderless freedom of Aphrodite without private rights and property, subservient to matter and natural life, and to the harmony of the universe, which they had not yet outgrown. Under the moon, the law of matter prevailed, the world of endless becoming with death as the twin of life. She who awakens life works for death. Death is the lot of children born to a mother. But with patriarchy, mother right is left with the animals and the, and the mortality is restricted to matter. While male spirit purified from the slag of matter ooh, rises up to, to immortality and immateriality, a supramaterial life belonging to the regions of imperishable light in the halls of the sun. Bakafen gets very elaborate in his praise of, of the new disembodied Apollo, um, Apollonian male soul um, in its triumph over the ecstatic mystery god, son of the great mother. Quote, Apollo frees himself entirely from any bond with woman. His paternity is motherless and spiritual as in adoption, hence immortal immune to the night of death, which forever confronts Dionysus because he is phallic, end quote. Consistent with this, Bakafin praised the emergence of the male individual ego at the cost of the human community. The individual leaf has no importance on the mother tree. All that is begotten belongs to the mother soil that encloses it. Man, to the patriarchal Greek and Roman, the glory of the city was was that it separated him from the fields. It defined him as a political animal. He could completely he could completely structure his world with his mind and slave labor, of course. And so he free so free himself from nature. Political is from polis means city. The city was man's number one tool with which he could achieve the manipulation and subordination of the natural world of the she. Bakafin accordingly glorified Rome. Quote, 
Rome started the struggle for freedom from nature and natural needs that marks the historical trend of Christianity and replaces it with a political idea that overruns everything and molds everything to its own needs, end quote. Rome indeed carried on a ruthless struggle to raise the patriarchal political state above religion and imposed a historical linear view of the universe instead of the former cosmic cycle view. The prestige of maternity was banished from the law of state, the law of the state. Rome cast off natural law, annihilated matriarchal Carthage, and eradicated every trace of the great matriarchal Etrusian culture. Irreplaceable knowledge and experience were lost through this destruction. Bakafin says, however, quote, what justified the colossal destruction Rome brought was the spiritual liberation following the ascendancy of historical consciousness over the natural idea and cosmic law. Western life truly begins with Rome, in quote. Indeed, great highway builders, Rome rejects the law of, of material necessity and upholds the, the superiority of human mind over the messages of nature, earth, and cosmos. Quote, everywhere he, the Roman male, regards himself as the first factor in historical life, in quote. Among Rome's first edicts was the subjugation of women and children to the complete control of the fathers, who were given life and death power over all members of the family. This is called by Bakafen an eminently ethical achievement. God damn. But King Severus, who, who founded the Roman community, was himself probably a true, um, Etruscan. He was conceived at a sacred festival of the goddess, the son of his mother. And the Latin League was dedicated by him to the uh, Aventine Temple of Diana. Upper class Roman um, patri uh, patricians were solar consecrated, were solar consecrated, where the plebs, the common people, were dedicated to the Magna Mater, the primal mother. Ceres was their protectress. Ceres was their protectress. And the community confided its treasury, its laws, and the decisions of the Senate to her temple, believing nothing could be falsified there. In Athens also, the popular assembly was identified with Demeter, the earth mother. So the city emerges as man's ultimate attempt to become man-made, born from his, born from himself rather than from mother nature. The feeling of self-sufficiency he achieves through the city is largely abstract and spurious. The sources of our biological lives remain the same as they always were. They come from matter and land, but city man maintains contact with his natural life sources, not through immediate body experience, but through an artificial medium of exchange, money. He no longer works with the earth. He buys it. The ancient energy exchange between humans and nature becomes a money exchange between humans only. Oh. Oh. Mm -mm -mm. 
Oh, my gosh. Norman O. Brown writes in Life Against Death, quote, money is at the heart of the new accumulation complex. Uh, the capacity of money to bear interest is, let's see, to bear money, for money to bear interest is at, is its energy, excuse me. Its body is that fundamental institution of civilized man, the city. The archaeologists know the complete rupture with the previous style of life, which marks the foundations of the first cities. The institution of interest-bearing capital is the key to this abrupt reorganization. A city reflects new masculine aggressive psychology of revolt against the female principles of dependence and nature, end quote. So there arose the city-states, seeds of the modern nations, organized around a professional male priesthood, politicians and specialist workers living off an often artificially forced agricultural surplus, forced by slave labor in the past, forced by chemicals today. The centralizing, uh, centralizing idea of the city-state was an identification of the divine king with the sun god. This new male god ruler was seen as the dispenser of divine justice, order, and measurement, all the ancient functions of Maat and the moon goddess. The sun father was the lord of the crops and measurer of new solar seasons. Oh, it was seen. Ah, it was seen. Let's see. It was the sun. It was the sun now who was seen to germinate the seed with his phallus sunbeams. A false notion. The sun is a necessary, a false notion. The sun is a necessary but not sufficient. A false notion. The sun is a necessary but not a sufficient cause of life. All planets receive sunlight, but only the one with earth and water grows anything. The sun king also determined the agricultural taxes by which the production of the country was hijacked to support the the growing urban elites who lived luxuriously while the landed farmers and peasants were impoverished. Around 3000 to 2000 BC, the life of the citizen began to displace and dominate that of the country villager. The earlier solar wheel was found in Mesopotamia dating circa, uh, circa 4000 BC. By the time of the Roman Empire, every aspect of life was dominated by the demands and lifestyles of the urban centers. The famous Roman roads built by slaves were meant to transport armies and weaponry outward into tribal territories, the wealth of the plundered earth in the form of food, metals, and human slaves was then transported back into Rome to support the increasingly complex way of life at its imperial urban heart. Ha! Rome was the central sun with the lines radi- oh, shit. radiating from it in all directions. Highways of power allowed conquest and trade the Roman way. And highways of expropriation carried all the earth's bounty back into the city coffers. 
all roads lead to Rome. The city broke down the organic life of the tribe and the agricultural village. It brought about the final destruction of the matriarchy and instituted the patriarchal rule. Of, let's try that. <sighs> All right. Dang. All right. Okay. Phallic psychology led to aggressive manipulation of life materials, lifestyles, and life energies, and the rape of nature by technical mechanical means. All this was understood as the conquest of the male mind over female matter. Living as we do in the full hypothesis of the intellectual sun god's victory over matter, with its results ticking over our heads every second in the form of global annihilation, the boyish enthusiasm of the past 4,000 years over its newly discovered male mind and male seed power can leave us a little queasy. The taste of victory has turned more than a little sour. In the 4,000-year-old epic of Gilgamesh, our hero sets out on a sacred quest to slay the Sumerian forest demon, Huawa. The purpose of this sacred quest for Gilgamesh and his friend, Enkidu, uh, Enkidu, is, in Thompson's words, to make a name for themselves, a name that can live on after them, a monument to the ego, end quote. Because Gilgamesh reasons, this is the only way men can conquer death. Because he has established the ego of man on a linear, phallic course, he can no longer return to the cycles of nature or be a part of the organic life and death cycles of the Great Mother. Man's ego and its victories now constitute his whole isolated identity, a historic, ha, a historic identity. Ugh. Mm. Goddamn. Mm. Gilgamesh does slay the forest demon, who is the mother, and is left alone with his famous name civilized, morbidly self-conscious man's desire to overcome earth and death and the bondage of flesh and woman only creates a vaster kind of death for himself, for he has killed off everything sacred. Now he must truly die alone. Oh, shit. As Thompson writes, as Thompson writes, the ego, oh, Oh, shit. Oh. Mm -mm. Ah. Oh. Ah. Okay. Uh, hmm. As Thompson writes, quote, the ego has definitely arrived on the scene of history and it, and it is screaming out against its cosmic isolation. Before all the processes of culture were connected with, before all the processes of culture were connected with the cycles of nature. In death, tribal man simply returned to the great mother. But when civilized man sets up walls between himself and the forest, and when he sets out 
And when he sets up his personal name against the stars, he ensures that he now that the now isolated ego will cry out in painful recognition of its complete alienation in the fear of death. End quote. Yeah. Significantly, the murder of the forest always leads to the desert. Oh. Deserts always seem like ancient environments, but in fact, they are the youngest environments on earth. Most deserts are man-made. They are... They are what's left after everything else has been conquered and used up. In the, uh, in the, Quam- in the Qumran and the Morabat's caves in dry cliffs on the shores of the Dead Sea, hundreds of scrolls have been found since 1947. Some of them dating back a thousand, uh, some of them dating a thousand, a thousand years older than any Hebrew copy of the Old Testament seen before. These scrolls con- uh, constituted the library of a Jewish monastic, uh, monastic community that was located in the area before and during the time of Christ. It is believed by some that this historic, that the historic Christ, the man who was Christ, spent time in this community and uh, incorporated many of his doc, of its doctrines and worldviews into his teaching, into his teachings. Others believe that the idea or figure of Christ was based on several men, teachers of righteousness who came from this or similar communities of that time. As the Dead Sea Scroll texts and other extra biblical writings dated centuries before Christ show, Jewish religious mystics and of radical sects, such as the Essenes, were approaching and enunciating a vision of the Jewish Messiah many generations before Christ, a Messiah in strong contrast to the Orthodox teachings of the Old Testament prophets, though fulfilling many of their ideas. The Messiah of the Jewish Dead Sea Scrolls sects was not only to be a political historic redeemer of the Hebrew people, he was also being shaped in their visions into a divinely appointed and apocalyptic savior figure. In the order of the Krumran community's messianic banquet, it was ritually stated that God, Yahweh, would beget this Messiah. According to a major authority on the Dead Sea Scrolls, John Allegro, Quote, we appear then to have a Qumran thought already, already the idea of the lay Messiah as the son of God begotten or begotten of the father, a savior in Israel, end quote. The, uh, the Messianic banquet was reserved for the male initiated elect of the community and was seen as a pattern or rehearsal of the divine banquet that would be held for the elect who survived the great purging of the world in the last days. Mm. This Messianic banquet, of course, prefigures the Last Supper. So many basic elements and ideas of Christianity are written down in the Dead Sea text. In fact, that many Christians were very upset when the scrolls were first revealed and their contents published. They did not want to give ancient Jews credit not simply for the not simply for the birth of Jesus, but for almost the entire ideological substance of their Christian religion. Study of the scrolls reveals, however, that this credit is due. The scrolls contained 
contained hymns of the Qumran sect, hymns which refer to the, to angels and the devil, Belial, uh, Belial, the angel of darkness, Satan, to heaven and burning hell, to the God-ordained dualisms of truth versus perversity, of debashed flesh versus redeemed spirit, of the hidden children of light versus the children of darkness, and to the hope of redemption by God from the sins of the world. The scrolls speak of the Prince of Light, who is about to come and save the faithful Jews, not only from Roman domination, but most of all, from the corrupt Orthodox Jewish priesthood in Jerusalem. Apparently, the major enemies of the of these monastic desert communities. Oh, shit. In the in hymns and other texts, the Qumran initiates uh, the Qumran initiates spoke of the redemption of human sin by God's grace and elaborated their doctrine of human perfection, i.e. the new covenant of Christianity. In fact, the sect called itself the new covenant. The Qumran sect began sometime between 135 and 104 BC and ended in 70 AD. Their ideas of the Christ-like teacher of righteousness referred to also as the anointed one or Messiah predate the New Testament by at least a century. In a world seemingly falling apart through incessant warfare, social and political corruption, the Qumran community practiced strict ascetic discipline, regulating every aspect of daily life. They were communal in all things, practicing humility, opposing lying and negligence. Some of their penalties were extreme for uh, for incident for, quote, indecent exposure during bodily movement. The initiate was penalized by 30 days of deprivation, deprivation of rations, which were thin enough. Foolish laughter <laughs> brought down the same 30 days. The for unnecessary self-exposure of genitals, the penalty was six months. Such practices were designed to wean the male spirit from all attachment to or identification with the earth or the human body, baby. Indeed, they conditioned a revulsion to these things. Though the Jewish Essenes were traditionally celibate, apparently they were, there were some female initiates in some of these communities. But the hymns, doctrines, and customs of the Qumran communities were very misogynistic. In Allegro's words, women were seen essentially as potential seducers of men from the straight and narrow way. Okay. The straight and narrow way. And the documents show an obsession with whores and the snares of the flesh. In one scroll from the fourth cave is a hymn warning about harlots, quote, in perversion, they handle her befouled organs of lust. They penetrate the orifice of her legs in wicked acts and behave with guilty rebelliousness. Blank. Uh, let's see. Pits of darkness. The sins within her skirts are many. Her garments are the murk of twilight. Her adornments are tainted with corruption. Her bed is a couch of defilement depths of the pit. She is the foremost of the ways of sin and alas, all her, all who take her will come to ruin. Her eyes glance keenly hither and thither beneath her voluptuous heavy lids, looking for a righteous man to seduce him, a perfect man to make him stumble. 
upright men to lead them astray, those chosen for rectitude to shun the commandment, end quote. Oh, oh, oh shit. Woo. As Allegro notes, all such warnings against the wiles of the harlots were in reality documents of pagan religions. They also record a general attitude about women and sex that led most of these desert monks to renounce marriage. Who was Jesus Christ? Clearly the New Testament Messiah came from or was at least deeply influenced by these Jewish Essene and Essene-like monostatic communities. Somehow the New Testament writers melded the Qumran, the Qumran concept of the teacher of righteousness with the Hebrew prophetic tradition of a historic Messiah or political redeemer of the Hebrew people. Most of the New Testament disciples, including the gospel writers, were Jewish males who could who could easily have absorbed this mixture of orthodox and radical Jewish messianic ideas, including their Qumran elaboration into a divinely appointed savior or son of God who promised redemption of the soul from the, from sin and even salvation of the elect at the end of the world, which was seen to be imminent. These Jewish messianic ideas were then interwoven by the gospel writers or by time itself, uh, um, which was volatile with the ancient pagan images of the dying God. For the gospel stories of Jesus are thick with symbols pulled from Babylonian, Sumerian, Egyptian, and in general, Neolithic rites of the vegetation deity, uh, Tammuz, Dumuzi, Adonis, Osiris, Dionysus, etc., who is sacrificed on the mother tree for the renewal or rebirth of life of the world. The passion, the self-sacrificing ritual Christ, does not have its roots in intellectual ideas, but in the primordial passion of the great mother who dies or whose beloved daughter or son dies to ensure that the world will grow green again with spring. It is not an accident that the birthday of Jesus is at the winter solstice when the sun is reborn or this, or that his death and resurrection correlate with the spring equinox when the, when the world is reborn. Jesus Christ was the last vegetation deity of the Near Eastern world or all the remain or all that remained of one pitting himself against the rational corruption of urban Rome as it extended into the ancient quote holy land. But a vegetation God makes no sense separate from earth, ecstatic cycles and a female moon. The Jewish Essene like communities had broken utterly with the pagan visions and rhythms they were anti-earth, anti-body, and anti-woman. In the ascetic uh, aridity of the desert, they raised up disembodied male spirits against the flesh. Against the flesh, the world, and the devil. The Neolithic garden of oneness with the goddess was gone. What was left was a dry, fervid, patriarchal war, war of the spirit against everything alive. Jesus Christ, the last vegetation god of the Neolithic Near East, bloomed in the desert. <laughs> he bloomed as a devastating sun, withering to all life. All he could die for was an afterworld. 
Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Woo, that is the end of chapter 43. We're going to go ahead and continue with chapter 44, Life as a Mistake. It is typical of Westerners to view all Eastern religions, especially Buddhism, as nihilistic or life-negating, while flattering ourselves that the Western Christian worldview and culture is positive and life-affirming. In fact, both Christianity and Judaism, as well as Islam, are Eastern religions they swept from the Near East, along with the Indo-Aryan sun god beliefs, and eventually stepped, stamped out the truly Western indigenous pagan religions of all of Europe. And whether, uh, and whether of East or West, all patriarchal religions are inherently nihilistic and fascistic. Somebody about to be mad. They condemn the earth. Uh, let's see. They condemn the earth as the source of material life while exploiting her resources and creatures greedily for their own advantage and seek abstract spirit somewhere in the sky. They desire illumination or salvation, not within the ongoing life and death process, but by denying it, striving to escape it or being, quote, redeemed from it through a male godhead who acts as Erstat's mother. In its concept of original sin and the need for salvation from fleshly life, and in its strange elitist belief that only one man has ever been of divine birth, Christianity perhaps, uh, the uh, Christianity is perhaps the most nihilistic religion yet to appear on earth. Certainly, its impact on European culture throughout the years of the church's domination was almost entirely necrophilic and destructive. In the house of the Lord, ruled by the Christian hierarchy, man came not to live, but to prepare for death. Uh, life was corruption and evil. Life was to be lived merely as an expiation for being born. Woo! Death was the only hope of salvation from bodily existence. Beyond death lay the hereafter, unspoiled by suffering and sin, unlimited by time, space, and flesh, pure heavenly bliss floating around at the feet of the Lord. This life on earth was not to be celebrated, but despised, a passing moment of wretchedness and pain on the threshold of angels. The more such doctrine was preached, the more accurate it became. What 4,000 years of increasing patriarchy had made of human life on earth was indeed hell. Let's see. Christian Europe in the span of its glory was, was the fluorescence of hell. Much of the Western world's secular ripoff of the earth's people and natural resources has been inspired and justified by this Christian religion attitude, religious attitude. That earthly life is debased and unreal anyway, and earth exists merely to be used with appropriate contempt by spiritually ambitious men. In fact, throughout the European Middle Ages, the world was pictured literally as the devil's excrement. Christian paintings and drawings of the time show cities, fields, animals, humans, trees, dogs, babies, flowers, all falling like masses of shit from the ass of Satan who squats above us, all grinning. He, he squats above us, all grinning. 
uh, it's interesting in this context that Martin Luther had his great Protestant vision while sitting, as he tells it, as he tells us in his own words, on the privy. For those who are just joining, I am reading from the great, wonderful, magnanimous works of Monica Zhu and Barbara Moore, entitled The Great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth. We are on chapter 44. For those that want to uh, click on the link in the description to get the free PDF version available online to read along, we are reading from chapter 44, which is entitled Life as a Mistake. So uh, let's see, it says that it's interesting that in this context, Martin Luther had his great Protestant vision while sitting, as he tells us in his own words, on the privy. The matriarchal attitude to biology and sexuality, positive celebration and ritual ecstasy was not acceptable to the Lord. If sex and human biology were good, then women were good. And ecstasy can only be initiated by women who are equal and free partners, daughters of the cosmic mother. But this utterly contradicts Yahweh's wrathful theology where women as the carriers of sexuality are the cause of the fall and original sin. Both Old Testament and Christian priests saw physical love as the arch enemy of the spirit. It was it was antichrist. It was Satan. Female sneers lining their male path to the to the disembodied hereafter. Long before Freud, the cosmic serpent was reified into a bestial symbol of sexual love. Counseled uh, counseled that women were the tempters unclean deceivers of the male soul, young boys were trained to be constantly on guard, even in dreams against the female wiles. Until the trumpet announced judgment day and the male spirit would be transported into heaven in which women were safely unsexed. This training in sexual paranoia was all pervasive in Christendom. Without it, the inquisition could have never happened. Eating of the paradise fruit of sexual consciousness is forbidden by Yahweh and the Bible. And this ordinance was carried out by the Christian priesthood in Europe. Original sin was intrinsically linked to orgasmic experience. Love to be made pious and useful had to be sanctioned by the Lord, blessed by a celibate male priest. And then it was to be practiced only for the purpose of procreation, baby, righteously, not ecstatically. Men should use women for the Lord to be fruitful and multiply his followers. El Shaddai, God of the the early Hebrews, was a relentless punisher of sexual deviation. A devi and deviation was any sexual activity not directed towards making children. Non-reproductive sex was considered a capitulation to bestiality, a strange error for the original Hebrew pastoralists to make since they should have observed it was it was beast and beast only who copulate solely for the purposes of reproduction. The error doubtless derived uh, from the newly discovered divinity of the human semen. He who wastes his semen was a murderer to be punished accordingly. Onan in Genesis 38, 8 through 10 is killed by Yahweh for cautious interruptus, spilling his seed on the ground to prevent conception. This is the origin of the term Onanism, meaning male masturbation, a crime punishable by death in the Old Testament. The command of the Hebrew tribal God against um, against 
the waste of male seed is the source of all Western laws against abortion, uh, contraception, masturbation, homosexuality, oral sex, and so forth, none of which were considered sins or crimes in pagan Europe. From the Old Testament to, uh, from the Old Testament, the Christian priesthood inherited the idea that to quote, waste semen, to use it non-reproductively, was to waste the life seed of the divine father Yahweh, diminishing his essence. Oh, diminishing his essence. It was also you, it was also to use women as something other than seed ovens or breeding cows. Hindu religion is also obsessed with semen, seeing it as Atman, the cosmic seed. Above all, the women, the woman was not to enjoy the sexual act. The husband's orgasm was allowable as he worked for the Lord. But to give, uh, but to give woman pleasure was to give flesh its due. Ha! Ah! Y'all ain't heard. Above all, the woman was not allowed to enjoy the sexual act. The husband's orgasm is allowable because he's doing God, he's doing the work of the Lord. But to give woman pleasure was to give flesh its due, tantamount to working for the devil. If a woman enjoyed sex, she was corrupt. Further, she might seek it outside the patriarchal household. The man's property might pass to a child not his own. Most of all, the mutual ecstasy of both partners would be cosmic union with the goddess. They would then backslide into the ancient matriarchal religions and social ways. Patriarchal dogmas of fleshly sin and corruption are always threatened by the imminent fact of earthly ecstasy. Oh, God, y'all ain't heard. So is patriarchal property, which is built up so painfully via the denial of ecstasy. Islam, which also derives from the Bible, has gone to terrible lengths to prevent female enjoyment of sex. Infibulation and clitorindectomy still practiced in parts of Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Egypt, Iraq, Somaliland, Ethiopia, Togo, and probably other East African religions is practiced on seven to 12 year old girls to make sure they will never, to make sure they will not be interested in sex. In the most extreme form, infibulation still practiced in Sudan, the child's labia menorah are sliced off, the clitoris is cut out, and the vagina is sewn up, leaving a straw for urination and the passes and the passage of menses. This prevents the girl from considering intercourse until her wedding night. When she is sliced open to fit the size of her husband's penis, for childbirth, she is sliced open further and then re-sewn. Reasons given for this operation are hygiene, beauty, woman's natural genitalia are seen as very ugly, and for prevention of prostitution. It is believed that girls who have not been purified in this way will go with many men, or they might experience sexual love with other women, especially when living intimately together in polygynous households. Protests against this female mutilation have been brought before the United Nations agencies and repeatedly tabled. UN officials seeing it as a cultural custom with which they have no right to interfere. 
We can imagine that if thousands of young boys each year were being castrated in these countries, the UN might make a statement, but perhaps not. World diplomats, overwhelmingly male, continue to pretend that sexual politics has nothing to do with world politics. The Christian church uh, combined Old Testament insistence on sex for procreation with the classic Greco-Indian uh, ideal of sexual abstinence or homosexual misogyny. The, res the result was a form of marriage involving the greatest possible restriction of sexual feeling. The doctrinal, the doctrinal union of male spirit with female dumb matter, seen as a legal union under God's will of two incompatible opposites, was of course not a union at all, but a cultural and physical enslavement of one sex by the other. In patriarchy, concepts of self and property are linked, while ecstatic means standing outside oneself. And so there is a very deep repression of ecstasy. And so there is a deep, a very deep repression of ecstasy in patriarchal society. Men fear leaving their social status as master or husband and returning as a son to the cosmic mother. Men fear the no mind, cosmic mind center of orgasm, its similarity to death experience or ego loss and to madness, lunacy, moon surrender. And so men having divided mind from body, then manipulate the body or penis as an instrument of uninvolved experience. The mechanistic, this mechanistic distancing debases sexuality in order to ward off the challenge of love. The deepest I thou among humans cannot exist under patriarchy. Come on, y'all. Come on and let me know you heard. This is preaching that's happening today. Okay. The deepest I, thou among humans cannot exist under patriarchy. The almost death orgasmic experience where the ego surrenders its defenses and becomes one with the cosmic self because the God of patriarchy condemns and rejects such ecstasy in his creatures. Instead, the man maintains his self-enclosed, often self-righteous ego, while the woman is depersonalized into a flesh object. Further, women are defined as sexually passive and naturally masochistic. All of this for highly political reasons. Uh, depersonalized sex allows the man to keep his ego, i.e. his property, and patriarchal conditioning ensures there is no strong and healthy woman there to challenge him in the name of a higher transcendence. If such a woman should appear, she is dismissed as evil. Beyond the wastelands of despair, suffering, and alienation are goddess realms of intense joy and illumination. But the war and morality god stands at the border and will not allow the male ego to cross over. In Christianity, the only love ecstasy allowed is beyond the body. One may love the pure disembodied spirit of God or of Christ. Spiritual orgasm is the only type allowed to the lovers of the Christian God, the ascetic male and female saints and martyrs. Indeed, saints and ascetics may experience genuine, thr genuine thrills of passion for this divinely abstract lover. But most Christians have lived lives of chronic guilt, unable to close 
the gap between heavenly love and bodily experience. Every attempt to escape from sexuality, excuse me, every attempt to escape from sexuality transforms itself into purience. Nowhere has sex been so debased and pornography so profitable as in the realms of Christendom. Y'all are not hearing, okay? The moment of life's origin, the moment of the fusion of the female and male energies in non-reproductive ecstasy, it is in treating this moment as a bestial convulsion that patriarchal religion reveals its utter separation from life. Matriarchal identification of sexuality with the sacred, of the body with the spirit, threatened the manipulative dualism of patriarchal rule. Sexuality had to be ideologically debased while reproduction was encouraged. This was accomplished by acknowledging male lust while condemning female flesh. Fuck, then repent. To this day, Christian religious doctrine exists to punish us for a bestiality which is, which, which it has itself created. A most unholy trinity dominates the patriarchal tradition. Rape, genocide, and war. This trinity is an ideological machine grinding out incessant warfare, power politics, exploitation of everything exploitable as some kind of objective historical process. And God the Father, the in doctrine and in function, legitimizes all earthly patriarchs, bosses, slave owners, global corporations, male-controlled institutions and professions of the church, state, university, law, medicine, military, which exist to capture and reify life and reify life process. This secular imperialist tradition has for its model the domination of female matter by male mind. It is piously rationalized by theological doctrine and exploited endlessly by business and political interests. Its existence requires the sexual and intellectual destruction of women. And any life form, humans, animals, plants, jungles, mountains, seas, seen as female, i.e. corrupt, dumb matter, may also be blasted, bulldozed, exploited, or otherwise improved by the all-conquering male mind. With the blessings of all the male priesthoods, Women in the Judeo-Christian, Islamic, Buddhist, Hindu, Confucius traditions are seen as some kind of functional mistake. Nature is a mistake. Life is a mistake. And the male mind was born to correct it. Oh, every woman should be overwhelmed with shame. This is a quote. Every woman should be overwhelmed with shame at the very thought that she is a woman. End quote, said St. Clement, uh, Clement, quote, to be fully developed as a human being to develop to full to be fully developed as a human 
being born is to be born a male, said Tom, Thomas of, Aquin, of Aquinas. Aquinas believed the female sex was produced by a defect in nature's active force or even by a wind shift such as that of the tr- the south wind, which is moist. Oh, my God. Um, the Orthodox Jewish man thanked his God every morning that he wasn't born a woman. Quote, if the world could be rid of woman, we should not be without, we should not be without God in our intercourse, said Cato of Utica. Quote, among all savage beasts, None is found so harmful as the woman, end quote, said St. John of Christodom. Quote, what a misfortune to be a woman, and yet the worst misfortune is to not, uh, is to not understand what a misfortune it is, end quote, said Soren Kirkusgaard. The civil death of married women became functional law in Christian Europe. Whereas in pagan codes, such as the Irish Shonkas Moor, a married woman retained both property and civil rights. Under Judeo-Christian law, her original sin was punished by total civil and personal disenfranchisement. The, um, uh, isum, the assuming, ecumenal, ecumenical, I don't know what that is, uh, council at Macon, I'll have to research that. Uh, council at Macon in 900 decided with only a one vote margin that women had souls. Our souls were voted to us by some radical bishops of the Celtic church. In still later times, even this faint concession would seem heretical. The Christian fathers of the witch hunting centuries, if there was such a thing as a female soul, it existed entirely as a tool of the devil. The 500 years of European Inquisition was a systematic and intensive uh, punishment of the female soul. To understand how such a grotesque phenomenon can happen, we need a brief overview of the development of the European mind, body, heart, and soul under Christian under the Christian religion. The best analytical survey of this time is provided by Michael Foucault in two works, Madness and Civilization and Discipline and Punishment, uh, the birth of the prison. Though not a feminist per se, Foucault is a superb analyst of how the body, its rhythms and energies became the subject slash object of the Western machinery of total domination. Rome was the world's first imperial power and Europe was the first, was the first colony. The patriarchal machine set in place by Roman conquest and, and well oiled by Christian ideology ruled Europe by a threefold subjugation of mind, spirit, and body. It took the raw resources of land, existing cultural customs and inventions, human energy and labor capacity, including female reproductive capacities, and ran these through the intellectual, religious, and social processing gears of state control, wealth-based patriarchal class systems, and ontological theories of earthly evil meant to rationalize the very new and man-made evil of imperial domination. Rome could not control Europe forever by armed force. It had to control European mind and spirit to condition the pagan people to exploit and police themselves. 
Christianity was the tool of this conditioning. Gener- uh, generation upon generation of Europeans underwent what amounted to political brainwashing of the first colonial conditioning process. People were told from childhood that they were born evil, born in sin, and that life was meant to be full of suffering. They deserved the suffering as punishment for their human corruption. The elite few who did not seem to be suffering much, but lived in luxury and in domination over the wretched many, were said to be placed in domination by God, and their rule was not to be questioned. Those who rebelled against earthly injustice and equity and inequity were rebelling against God's will for man and would be punished both on earth and forever after in hell. Those who submitted meekly to all wretchedness and justice and misfortune and did not rebel or seriously question their misery would also be punished on earth with long suffering. But after death, they would they would get theirs in heaven. What such Christian indoctrination amounted to was a fiendishly effective training program for voluntary self-repression. It was designed to keep the natives busy on their knees, weeping buckets of blood, while the elite few carried off with all the marbles. How did European people endure for hundreds of years living inside a system which ground them up like daily hamburger in a sin, guilt, and punishment machine? So long as the bulk of the European population lived on the land under the feudal system, the combined church court power was, by necessity, loosely exercised. With the development of centralized wealth and growth of urban centers under royal and clerical domination, more people were pulled into the cities, were controlled over by populations, uh, where controlled over populations was maximized. This was the origin of the European state, the collusion of the court power and the church power forming the control center over the lives of the people. Although our history books highlight the power struggles between the religious and ruling elites of Europe, in everyday life and most of the time they co- in everyday life and most of the time they colluded as one spiritual secular power to keep the masses of people subjugated. The church dogmatically upheld the court state by uh, fulminating against all political rebellion, labeling troublemakers, including labor organizations, as heretical and satanic, and in general, throwing God's weight on the side of of submissive loyalty to the crown and against demonic revolt. The state then scratched the church's back by using civil law and police power to uphold to uphold one religion and punishing anyone who spoke otherwise as a heretic or blasphemer, a blasphemer. Throughout the formation of the European nation states, religious definitions systematically began legal uh, became legal categories. For example, a French edict of 1347 published by the state stipulated punishment for anyone who criticized or questioned the church, spoke against clerics in any way, or used God's name in vain, or uh, or God's name in vain, such blasphemers were to be locked into the public pillory every day from the hour of prime to that of their deaths. A mud. This is um. This is a quote. And mud and other refuse 
though no stone or anything injurious could be thrown at their faces the second time in case of relapse, it is our will that he be put in the pillory on a solemn market day and that his upper lip be split so that his teeth appear, end quote. So much for blasphemers. As the centralized church state drained away more wealth from the land and into the city environments and more wealth was wasted via the luxury living of the court and the church elites and endless war, one way to absorb and, div and divert the interstate revolutionary energy of a suppressed population is by using it up in interstate conflicts. Mm -hmm. Is to use it up. In interstate conflicts, there was, of course, more poverty. Poverty among large crowded city populations was disruptive of the public tranquility with crime, prostitution, and disease rampant. So for the first time in history, the poverty problem was solved in Europe by blaming poverty on the poor. The secular and religious powers enforced this blame by declaring the poor sinful and insane and lock, um, by declaring the poor sinful and insane mm -mm -mm. and locking them up in hospitals, which were in fact prisons. This was the origin of the mental institution as Foucault describes it in Madness and Civilization. From the pulpit, there were moral denunciations of the poor, declaring them all to be unbaptized, living in sin and adultery, spreading demonism, in their squalor and so forth, all to stigmatize the victims of the economic system for the problems of the system. Rounded up and thrown into places like Hospital General, the poor were removed from the city streets and also subjugated to punishment for their economic condition. Directors of these hospitals had total control over the inmates with stakes, irons, prisons, and dungeons at their disposal for the task of teaching morality to the, to the indigent. As Foucault points out, under imperialist class labor exploitation and Christian doctrines of innate human corruption, the whole idea of work had changed. Work was man's pun. Ooh, uh, uh Work was just man's punishment for being born sinful. Daily work was no longer seen as a seasonal cycle. Uh, cyclic ritual participation in the life of earth because it was no longer that or as sheer productiveness of wealth, but as a moral exercise or expiation of mortal guilt. Since the fall, man had accepted labor as a penance for its power to work, uh, for its power to work redemption. It was not a law of nature which forced men to work, but the effect of a curse, end quote. At least this is how the religious and courtly elites interpreted human work. For such a definition worked to their advantage. People had to bend their backs in endless, unrewarding labor, not to provide the few in power with unearned luxury and idleness, but to pay back their debt of guilt to God. Let me read that again. People had to bend their backs in endless, unrewarding labor, not to provide the few in power with unearned luxury and idleness, but to pay back their debt of guilt to God. Therefore, the poor seen as refusing, oh my God, 
seen as refusing to work or also refusing to be moral, refusing to be righteous, refusing to pay their debt of sin to God. This concept of human labor has ruled the Western world for centuries. The religious ideology of work as divine punishment <sighs> adjusts people's minds to accept the idea of work as an exploitation of one's life's energies. The definition of the female body and female energy under patriarchal systems corresponds to the definition of the body energy of the poor and workers under capitalist economics. The bodily capacities and energies of some people are exploited, used as tools by others. And this is the development of all true classes, which can be simply categorized as the users and the used. Foucault writes that the body's that the body's con uh, constitution as a labor power is possibly uh, is possible only if it is caught up in a system of subjection in which need is also a political instrument meticulously prepared, calculated, and used. The body becomes a useful force only if it is both. A reap is it, it only if it is both a productive body and a subjected body. Thus, the political use of the body, the female body, or the body of the working class. The body cannot be used or exploited unless it is both oppressed and still functioning. This useful tool conditioning of females and workers is achieved by repressing the body's vital sexual energy, forcing it to sublimate in piety and drudgery. And this conditioning, as Wright clearly saw, is always achieved through religion and religious indoctrination, because, in fact, the spiritual and sexual energies are always subliminally linked. The church, state, ruling elite needs obedient workers to keep the economic and military organizations which service its power running. It also needs obedient or at least powerless female bodies to mass produce workers, the armies, the police, and so forth. Y'all ain't hearing. Y'all ain't hearing. Y'all ain't hearing. Listen, the church, state, ruling elite needs obedient workers to keep the economic and military organizations which serve, service its power running. It also needs obedient or at least powerless female bodies to mass produce the workers, the armies, the police, and so on. Foucault again writes that a population will become, a population will be precious in proportion to its numbers since it will afford industry a cheap labor force, which by lowering the cost price will permit a development of products and commerce. By doctrinally controlling the reproductive processes of women, forbidding contraception and abortion, making the multiplying of bodies an act by which the male simultaneously serves his God while subjugating his woman, etc. Ha! Ha! By doctrinally, uh, doctrinally controlling the reproductive processes of women, 
forbidding contraception and abortion, making the multiplying of bodies an act by which the male simultaneously serves his God and subjugates his woman. The church upholds and furthers the state's powers, the state's power and its business by assuring a continuous, large and exploitable population, guaranteeing one overspill of numbers to make armies, i.e. cannon fodder, and two, a cheap labor force, which is divided against itself via endemic competition of its numbers, and three, a disorganized and malnourished mass, which is more vulnerable to political manipulation from the top. Come on and say amen, hallelujah, some shit, right on. This is it. Like, I always feel like I'm out here talking about talking to myself. Y'all ain't heard. This is the coup d'etat right here. This is the question of the day. This book is fucking 50 years old. This book is 50 years old. But without understanding where the problem began, we are forever doomed. Another means of controlling large numbers Let's see. There's something I wanted to. There's something I wanted to piggyback off of on here. The doctrinal. Um, oh, so this question about you know the the potential um, turn overturning of Roe versus Wade. Um, these discussions that are happening in certain communities about reducing um, female humans to uh, quote breeders is patriarchal language. I give a fuck how progressive you think you are. If you are reducing a woman born, a female woman, a woman born female to a simple breeder, you are articulating the philosophy of grand old patriarchy. That's what you're doing. Okay. That's what you're doing. Another means of controlling large numbers. Oh, and also, those of you who are men, especially those of you who consider yourself progressive, consider yourselves progressive men, but are completely disconnected from the issues that you see only, um, only refer to the issues peculiar to women. You too are missing the boat. You too are victimized by this system. You too are the products of the original exploitation. Workers cannot be exploited by the state without the exploitation of the female body first. That's real. As as um as alluded to here by the need to control women's reproductive capacities to ensure the surplus of human bodies for uh, the um, the maintaining of the hegemony of power through police and, and armies and military and all of this shit that they use our babies for because the babies have no other options. Anyway, other means of controlling large numbers of, uh, to their detriment is the invention of mad. Listen, listen, somebody is about to be mad. Somebody out here going to be mad. Another means of controlling large numbers to their detriment is the invention of madness. Come on. 
Come on, come on on. Come on. Come on. Is the invention of madness and its institutional punishment. Among all ancient pagan and shamanic people, madness is a spiritual category. Oh my God. Madness is a spiritual category. Exotic behavior, schizophrenia, or hallucinations can mark a person destined for seership or shamanic psychic powers. Such people are treated as Ronald Lane has counseled us to, uh, has, has counseled us to treat the schizophrenic experience. Quote, make the person as comfortable and safe as possible and then allow them to go through their inner journey to the end. <laughs> Consequently, primal societies do not have unabsorbable crazy people who must be locked up to prevent harm to themselves and others. Such people are relatively recent, a such people are a relatively recent invention of Western societies. Christian culture has strong taboos against the crazy behavior. Its own um, its own repressions have created, especially um, it telescopes sin into madness in its horrified treatment of perf- of perfectly natural behavior, masturbation, sexual urges, mischievousness, and so forth. And the state wields strong taboos against nonconformity of any kind, seeing the lack of a will to conform socially as always a potential for political rebellion. As Thomas Satz showed in the manufacture of madness, the category of madness in the Western world was created to officially stigmatize and control those recalcitrant uh, people who were in effect sinners and rebels. In Madness and Civilization, Folk Cult further shows that the definition of what is mad has evolved through Western societies in perfect tandem with their political and ideology and ideology ideological evolutions. In the early middle middle ages, the madness inside human beings was defined as the remains of a natural bestiality, as yet unsalvated by the spirit. During the Inquisition, madness was the satanic process within the human soul, punishable as sin. With the age of reason that followed the age of witch huntings, Madness was socially and therapeutically redefined as the instinctive rebel within against the external authority of the bourgeois father. Oh, shit. Come on now. Of the bourgeois father. Changing changing, uh, interpretively as it did, however, in all cases, the fact of madness was the same. It was the appearance of anti-patriarchy as animality, as wildness, as rebellion, as uh, against legal and economic structures, as rebellion structures, as rebellion against religious um, assertion of male authority as the norm. Madness, as defined in Western Christian state societies, has always been a throwback to paganism, to nature and to the rule of women or to what was remembered as the ambience, uh, the ambiance of female nature and culture in the pre-patriarchal, pre-Christian world. 
i.e. madness is a political definition and a political state of being as an an atavistic throwback, it refers to actual historical and prehistorical conditions before the dominance of the patriarchal church state over the psyche. Mm -hmm. So we have a religious, economic, political system which creates poverty and then legally punishes the poor for being poor which forbids female all females all control over their reproductive processes because its power depends on state church control of these processes. And finally, a system which is legally empowered to define and punish as mad, as insane, anyone who is foolish or brave enough to rebel against such a system or who simply breaks down into understandable lunacy under the insane oppression of such a system. Further, you have large numbers of human laborers subjected to a religiously derived idea of work as punishment as a day after day after day grinding and straightening of the born sinner into a moral submission to the ruling machinery. And when and when they uh, let's see. And when they and when the very long day's work was over, the masses of people go home to what? To a personal life that has interjected a rigid repression of sexual ecstasy, of emotional epiphany, or mental joy, a repression of all holistic vitality by the will of God and order of the king. This was the melee of Europe, even before the eruption of the Inquisition, the melee of hell, a world in which public torture and executions and the dance of death were major popular entertainments, a world in which every town center exhibited a pilory, an execution block, assorted chains, whips, and other chronically inhabited instruments of individual straightening by the combined powers of church and court, over all of which loomed the ubiquitous image of the devil squatting and defecating the entire world as uh, as immorality and filth from his cosmic anus. Um, from such a melee, 500 years of inquisition was inevitably born. If life is such an error, and what else would such a melee feel like, then it must be corrected. If life is nothing but sin, and what else could such a world be, then it must be punished. The church court machine defined human life as sin, error, madness, and then empowered itself as the divinely appointed appropriate apparatus for the correction, cure, and punishment of human life itself. As Foucault points out in in historically chilling words, quote, the law of nations will no longer uh, countenance the order of hearts, end quote. So I am going to stop there. Those chapters ended up being a little longer than I thought. So I will reserve... Chapter 45, uh, that's the end of chapter 44. So I'll reserve chapter 45, which is entitled The Witch Hunts, for um, the continued reading, which will take place on Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, live on YouTube and also live on Facebook. Um, Again, that'll be Monday, Wednesday and Friday, uh, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time until we are done with the reading of this most amazing, prophetic magnanimous speech of literature entitled The Great Cosmic Mother, Rediscovering the Religion of the Earth by Monica Zhu and Barbara Moore. I am Iapo Ngina, 
born as Cassandra Faye Floyd, also known as the Rogue Black Girl. And I will see you again on Monday. In the meantime, uh, check the description below. There is a book club that I've initiated on Facebook. So you can click the link to get the details for that. Also, there is a link attached in um, in the um, in the description for the book. So if you have not purchased the book or don't own the book or not intending to buy the book or whatever, you can read the book online for free as a PDF. The link is um, the link is uh, the link is below in the description. Meantime, please share, um, you know, subscribe, like and all that stuff. Go back and listen to the reading while you're washing dishes. Read along, take notes because there are gems in here that are explaining what it means to change the world. Um, yeah, I'm just going to tell you, like, we get, I don't usually try to, you know, digress when the, with the reading, but we are in the middle of what we are experiencing as the apex of patriarchy. This is the turning point of patriarchy. This is the crossroads of patriarchy. This is whatever we do in this moment is going to be the breaking of, the ending of, or the continuing of this shit that we have been confronted with for a long time, 6,000 years right now, right? And so problem is, is when we are delivering a political historical analysis about what it is we're experiencing and what we have to do to change the world, right? Like, you know, demonstrations and writing to our senators and, you know, and all of that stuff. That's great. These are great, um, what do you call it? Tactics. But these are not the overall strategy. And the problem is, is that the strategy is the complete and total transformation of the planet and every institution on it which is going to require a complete and total deconstruction, dismantling of, burning to the ground and burial of the old age before we can step into the new. We cannot carry the weight and the baggage of the old age into the future. We can't. And so this book to me is so important because it does this dance between the idea that, you know, of spirituality, mythology as political, as existing simultaneously in a political, economic, agricultural world, in a, in a material world, right? And so what does that mean? When we look at the world today, when we look at the, the things that have happened just in the last few weeks, right? And we're trying to come to a conclusion about what is the cause of this shit that we're seeing? Mass shootings, uh, you know, police violence, you know, wars seemingly unending. The only institution in the world that is offering some kind of explanation to this madness that resonates with the spirits of human beings is, is goddamn the institutions that have us in this shit in the first place. So all these institutions are winning right now. Got people flooding back into the church, into the mosque, into the synagogue, convinced that we are on the precipice of the end of the world and shit, or that Jesus is coming back to lasso up the church and shit. And in the absence of an articulation and an analysis that explains the entire world, right? 
that explains the entire world as an organic whole who has been confronted with a sickness that needs to be cured, made right. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about patriarchy. Now, see, I'm a doctor, okay? So I speak in these analogies that make sense to me. Cancer in the body is still self. Cancer in this system is still self. It is it is self isolated from the whole, malignant, forgetting how to behave in harmony with the rest of the system, with the rest of the body, with the rest of the whole. It's still self, though. It's not an idea. It's still self. It is an indication, a peak uh, in indication that something that has been happening within the system has gone awry, has forgotten how to behave. Right. This is what we're looking at. So to start for our we're just doing ourselves a disservice. To, for our starting point to be like the age of exploration, you know, white people leaving, you know, Europe um, under the worst kinds of conditions to rescue themselves. So they go out to the world and just start terrorizing people. That is a very immature. I'm sorry. Somebody going to be mad. But this is a very immature and short sighted way to explain the fucking world. And that's deliberate. I'm, t- I'm going to tell you, we believe that because someone else has called on us to believe that. Talking about people of color. I'm talking about people who call themselves like marginalized or colonized or victimized or whatever the, you know, the word that is used to describe ourselves in relationship to the white world. I am saying this is not to excuse criminal behavior and institutions that have held hegemony over the world and the resources of people of color and the exploitation of their bodies. That is not what I am saying. What I am saying is while we are acknowledging that, We also have to be acknowledging that this period that we are in has a starting point and the starting point wasn't white people getting on boats and discovering, quote, the new world. That's not the starting point. White supremacy is a grandchild of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. White supremacy is a grandchild of patriarchy. And so this period that we're in, this Pluto returns energy that we are in for the next two years, where she is causing us, all of us, not just the nation itself, every individual in it and every individual on the planet to look deep and long and hard at our own participation in the world that we reside in, the world that we have created. And contrary to popular belief, white people didn't create this world. They own, they may be the figureheads of it right now. They may be the rulers of it right now, but they didn't create the world that we live in. They just happen to be the ones in the driver's seat right now. And so the uncomfortable question becomes, especially those of us who call ourselves world changers, baby. Those of us who say that we stand on the side of humanity in the future, honey, we more than anybody have some, have some, uh, <laughs> we have some skeletons to resolve because that's what the period is demanding of us. The period is demanding of us that whatever we think we believe, go deeper. Whatever we think we know, go deeper. 
whatever we have learned with all of our degrees, go deeper. Go deeper. And the more uncomfortable it makes you, the deeper you need to go into it. Because I'm telling you, this book here, baby, I don't, listen, I got four degrees. I don't read easily, I don't know, 800 books. This book here was like the goddamn coup d'etat. You understand? And it continues to be. Because what it does, what it did for me was to really challenge what I, what my identity had been shaped in. My identity had been, in, had been shaped in black nationalism, Afrocentricism. You understand that once black people are free, everybody is free, right? That, um, you know, that the problem that we got today is white imperial power. And once we undo that system, all the wrongs in the world will just magically wither the fuck away and shit. Sorry. That is wrong. That is wrong. This idea, this hyper romanticize, romanticizing, romanticizing, romanticization, right? Of history, especially those of us of color, of color. We do that. And I get it. Because of the world that we currently live in, and how we are always told that our beingness is to be challenged. Our beingness is less than, right? This is the narrative that persists right now. And so it's easy for us to get caught up in the wonderful aspects of our history, how we did this and how we built that and how we created this. And that's great. I'm not saying that is not necessary because it is. It's how I got my start. It is what emboldened me to be what some people may call abrasive, but it is what has emboldened me to be audacious in every space. Growing up a little black girl in Alabama who was made voiceless, this is what was required, was a certain level of confidence. Uh, some people perceive it as arrogance. Okay, fine, because you ain't used to having power be, um, you know, demonstrated from a black female body. Whatever makes you comfortable. You understand what I'm saying? But at the end of the day, these are the things that gave me the confidence, but I had to outgrow them. I had to go further. I had to go deeper. You understand? Why am I frustrated in certain circles? I had to go deeper. But this is what I believe. This is right on, right? Like, you know, Black people are the most oppressed people on the planet. So if we free, everybody free. Nope, that's not how that works. I'm sorry. That ain't how it's going to work. You understand? To romanticize your past, to to um, deliberately keep the doors closed on your negative contributions to what you are experiencing in real time is to be stuck, imprisoned in the life that you're complaining about. You cannot be free. You cannot be liberated. You cannot be sovereign without shining the light on that which weighs you down. And I'm talking politically, economically, socially, and spiritually. You understand? To be having these immature, almost infantile understandings of where we are politically in this day and age will doom our descendants to another fucking age of this shit. To another 200 years of this madness. I'm telling you. To assume 
for ourselves that what we think we know right now is enough is wrong. For me to be doing these deep dives into African history and unrooting all the time and every day, the fucked up, decadent, outrageously inhumane ways that African people behaved in the world to presume that it is only our relationship to the white world that transformed our behavior into something non-benevolent. To read about Asia and the Americas and Africa and pre-Roman Europe and the ways that we all our social relationships were based on our relationship to the mother, to the mothers, to the spirit of the mother in heaven who gives birth to all things in the universe and to the spirit of our mother earth and her personification in the material world as females, female humans, through whom the evolution of the entire species was possible in her body, which is always evolving, you see. Y'all want to hear that because your politics didn't taught you something else. Your politics that is um, designed, man, I ain't, trying to, I ain't trying to take y'all to church, but I'm just telling you, whatever you think you are questioning, whoever you think you are questioning, there's a reason that I say Iapo Moyende Angina and Cassandra Faye Floyd and the rogue black girl. There's an evolution that is always happening and required of us. If we, if the us that we are right now is no longer needed, the lessons have already been learned, then it forces us to evolve. And I ain't trying to talk in ambiguities, y'all. I'm trying to tell you that we can change the world. We can change the world quickly. We can change the world, not only in our lifetime, we can change the world in a decade. We can change the world in five years. I'm trying to tell you. We can do that, right? Um, but it, but the, the work is not, I'm sorry, baby, but the work is not fighting the police. The work is not, they can be strategies, I guess. I mean, tactics, I guess. You know, the demonstrating and all of that. That's okay. All right, fine, but baby, the work, the work, the work, the work, baby, we ain't even touched, we ain't even touched the hem of it. We have not, we have not, because we've grown comfortable in our oppression. We've grown comfortable in what we believe. We have grown like fixed, unmoving, stuck in our comfort of that which we think we know so we can't evolve we stay stuck in the same dogma in the same narrative you understand all of us we all do it we all do it and you know this book is a political book it's an economic book it is an explanation of the entire 6000 years of the birth of patriarchy in the many ways that it has shown its face and impacted the earth and its peoples. That is what this book is. It is 
It is the Bible of the human experience. That's what it is. And if you can accept what um, is being said scientifically, biologically, um, materially, spiritually, politically, economically, agriculturally, historically, traditionally, about how we arrived to where we are, then the solution becomes clear, crystal clear, crystal clear. I had a guy today responding to the last reading I did, which was chapter, I want to say 41 and 42. This guy is an acupuncturist. He is a doctor of oriental medicine. And so for me, I was like, oh, well, he'll surely, he got it. You know, he understands yin-yang theory. He understands how all things in the universe behave and come into and out of existence. Like, this is going to be a no-brainer for him. Maybe he inboxes me and asks me, so what? Um, the answer to patriarchy as matriarchy, is that what I'm supposed to assume? Like, hostily. I don't know this cat. But I was like, oh, he's an acupuncturist. Dope. Like, surely he'll get it. Child, please. No, he did not get it. And so I had to speak to him in a language he understood. You know, initially I was I was annoyed. But then I was like, why be annoyed? Just explain it to him in a language he can understand. The harmony of opposites represented by the yin and the yang symbol that everybody loves so much and don't have a clue what the fuck it means. You don't. The harmony of opposites, the balance between masculine and feminine, the poles of the yin and the yang is not man and woman. It's not. It is not wife and husband. It is not. The harmony of opposites represented in the yin and the yang is mother and son. It is mother and son. This is a scientific statement as well as a spiritual statement, as well as a political statement. What do I mean, mother and son? I mean that the matriarchy is a scientific historical acknowledgement that it is only biologically possible that females came first and from her body came through evolution her first son. The mother is always first. The mother came first. It is not mother and father because before the father ever became the father, he was a son. He was a son. This is the harmony of opposites represented by yin-yang theory. So what does that mean? If the son is at odds with his mother, if the son is at odds with his mother, if the son has abandoned his mother, if the son has left his mother, this is what she's talking about here where she's talking about the only way to escape the hell of earth and the flesh is to ascend to the spiritual sky god, right? The reason we're obsessed with planting shit on the fucking moon and trying to escape to Mars, which is the emblematic personification of patriarchy in the world. (laughs) These mythologies are not separated from each other. So what that means is, is the sun, and she even says it here somewhere. Where does she say it? Where she says the sun shines on every planet, but it is only the earth giving, the earth giving the nourishment of water and earth 
an atmosphere that allows just enough of the sun's phallic rays to be a generator of life that was already existing on earth, right? She is the facilitator of all life. The earth is, right? And so when you have in yin-yang theory, ultimate yang, ultimate yang is the desert she talked about. When yang is unbridled, when yang is um, running away from, when the sun is abandoning, running away from, his, his ego blazing out of control. There's a diagnosis in Chinese medicine called, um, called, um, called yang, blazing out of control, causes headaches, red eyes, right? Strokes, aneurysm, yang, fire, blazing out of control. It means that yang is unbridled by the yin, un, unanchored by the yin. There's not enough yin substance to anchor and secure that fire that is always attempting to rise. What does that mean in the world we live in? We're living in the personification of a young, unbridled, of a young, aggressive, of a young that is always destructive, if not controlled by yin, baby. The yin is the water. It is the earth. It is the trees. It is the dark. It is the cool. It is the mother. It is the feminine. And Yang's nature is always destructive, if not in a harmonious relationship with its mother. Okay? So, all of that to say, the world that we are living in, that we all acknowledge is white, male-dominated patriarchy, imperialism. What is that? Jesus Christ is the, um, is the figurehead of Yang blazing out of control. He is the symbol of the S-U-N unbridled. Jesus Christ is the personification of the world that we are living in right now that destroys all things yin. The earth, the atmosphere, whether you know it or not, the, the atmosphere is yin, right? The earth, the atmosphere, the water, the blood of the earth, Right. Um, uh, women, um, everything yin is being destroyed, literally consumed and turned into deserts by this unbridled, uncontrolled young that is forgotten that it is of its mother's body. It cannot exist without it. Spirit as a concept cannot exist without matter, without flesh, without blood, without earth. You see. So anyway, that's my digression. This book is everything. After I complete, I really rarely ever do any kind of summations at the end of chapters because I'm trying to just do a straight read. But it was on me. Right. That. Yeah, we're going to have to revisit some shit y'all ain't comfortable revisiting. That's that's because it's going to challenge everything you think you believe about, quote, politics and about the world and shit. Everything you think you believe is going to be rudely challenged by what is necessary to change the world. And the question is, is can you peel off what you think you know in order to step into the new you and the new world? That is, that's the challenge. Now, you can do with it what you want. It's either for you or not. That's okay. 
right? No judgment. It's just, it's for you or it ain't. But what I'm trying to tell you is we are at a crucial point. It is crucial. We have two years, a little less than two years, to make an impact, a radical and permanent impact on the future of humanity. We do. And it's a gift that we've been given. The reason it is a gift is because for the first time, we're able um, we're able to experience it in real time because there are people who are in the know, who are connected, right? Who see their place in the web. And so this is it. This is it. So I'm going to end. I never read this long, but this was on me. Um, you can go into my YouTube page, which is Iapo and Gina, to look through um, the other chapters. We are on chapter 45 now, so the chapters are numbered. You can go through, and um, yeah, and yeah, be ready because in July we're going to start the book club, and that's where we're going to have questions that I posit from each chapter and discussions that I facilitate from each chapter, and um, and really allow this book to be an organic um, organism that helps us to facilitate, you know, our entry into the new world. So that being said, again, Yapo and Gina, Cassandra Faye Floyd, also known as the Road Black Girl, and I will see you again on Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thank you for joining.